0: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: I just, (laughs) I just poured glasses of water straight from the faucet at home, like an animal.
0: Oh, I use the little fridge thing. That's one of my favorite things about being a homeowner is fridge water. Oh yeah,
2: I do have that fridge (laughs) thing. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a pretty good uh, new, new white paper about Facebook. Uh, but first, we, we want to talk about a, a meaty policy debate has finally gotten center stage in Democratic Party circles, maybe in a slightly confused way. Uh, so Sarah, uh, can you let us know like, what's, what's happening? How's we're,
0: it? We're talking healthcare again. So there has been- Every
2: time I try to get out- <laughs> <laughs> back
0: in. So there has been, we've seen over the past week or so, candidates getting more questions about, I think something that's a real central, central question in, you know, the single payer Medicare for all debate, but one that can get a little bit confused. And it's whether or not employer-sponsored insurance will continue. So just to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit. About half of Americans, I think the number is like 156 million, get their health insurance at work. It is the most common source of health insurance for someone who is not a senior. A lot of this has to do with some tax code provisions that go back to around World War II that make it very advantageous to you know compensate your employees with health insurance. Um, employers are not taxed on those benefits. So essentially, your dollars are going a lot further than the dollars you spend on actual salary. And one of the key debates that's playing out in the Democratic primary, in the Democratic Party, is about whether we want this system of employer-sponsored insurance to continue. And, you know, on one side of this, I'd say you have Senator Sanders pulling people over to the left towards supporting a system— where there is no more employer-sponsored insurance, that everyone is getting some version of government-run health care. Kamala Harris, you know, she said in an interview with CNN about a week ago, you know, she would support eliminating all of them. And we kind of knew this because she had endorsed the Sanders bill, but it it was still, you know, pretty notable that she, you know, didn't seem to hesitate. She just gave this answer very quickly. Whereas then you had, you know, this kind of confusing exchange we can talk about a little bit more with Cory Booker, asked about, you know, whether he'd continue private healthcare it wasn't super clear about you know was this insurance was this private hospitals and he gave an answer that was you know not quite as firm as Harris but i think this is you know an interesting debate where democrats as far as i can tell are a little bit torn i think there's an increasing desire in the party to get rid of employer sponsored insurance i don't think you actually need to do that to build a universal system, but it seems to be something that there's increasing desire to do. At the same time, there's a lot of trepidation about how you actually get there. Um, You know, 156 million people have health insurance at work right now. That's 156 million people who need to be moved to something else, who might be excited about moving to something else, who might not be. The polling suggests um, probably less excited, Um, you know, more people who are not excited about it. So it is a issue that I feel like is dividing the caucus a little bit when you look at, you know, the folks in Congress, when you look at the folks who are running for president. um, And it's, you know, one place where this is a big decision that if there's going to be a Medicare for all debate, this is going to be one of the key decisions that legislators are going to have to to make in deciding where they land.
3: So I I've, um, I have um I'd almost want to frame this a little bit. I have a rare point of framing disagreement with Sarah, and I feel like we're gonna agree on everything for the rest of the episode. So I'm gonna relish it here. Okay. Great. I don't it. really think this is about employer insurance. I think it's about private insurance full stop. Um, you have about 25-ish million more people who get private insurance on the individual market, some of them, a lot, most of them now through Obamacare. But under the Sanders plan, um, which is I think what is framing a lot of this debate, that's gone too. Um, and so is, by the way, the private insurance under Medicare Advantage, which is a program inside Medicare where you can sign up for private, um, basically managed care options. Um, there are reasons people do it, but the I think the main thing to know is that 34% of Medicare enrollees are actually on private Medicare Advantage insurance, and also Medicare itself has Part D, which is the the prescription drug benefit, which is run privately. And, and I think like the real fight here is one. One, do you have private insurance at all? Because you could totally imagine a plan that didn't have an employer-sponsored insurance market, but had, ba- but was based around private insurance. That's how like the Wyden-Bennett Healthy Americans Act was proposed to work a couple of years ago. Um, but the other thing here, which I think is much more the the kind of like tactical debate in the Democratic Party, even if you think there shouldn't be private insurance, even if you think it'd be great that there was like never a profit incentive in health insurance whatsoever. Is it too dangerous? You know, so you you have these sort of these other plans. Like I think, like the probably the best version of it is a Medicare for America Act, which is Jan Schakowsky and Rosa DeLauro in the House, um, and is sort of written in large part by Jacob Hacker, who's very thoughtful health policy wonk at Yale, Um, and that would you know, it builds out this Medicare plan, uses Medicare pricing, puts, you know, Obamacare people on it, Medicaid people on it, the uninsured on it, and lets individuals and employers buy into it. But the idea there is that rather than, like, forcing people off of stuff they may currently like, you let them transition to insurance that should be cheaper and and, and better over time. And the downside of that is that, like, maybe it's harder to get that pricing advantage because you have more hospitals or doctors say, I'm just not going to take any of Medicare at all. I'm going to stick with the private insurers. Um, Although, you know, by the same token, if they're going to be that opposed to Medicare, um, uh, to Medicare for All, you're going to have other political problems that are that are hard to surmount. But I think this is the real thing. It's like, should you have private insurance at all? And um, even if you don't want to have private insurance, are, is it really plausible to go to 180 million Americans or even more if you think of people who like Medicaid and Medicare Advantage and say to them, we're going to take what you have and you have to trust us and what we're going to put in its place will be better? I don't think...
2: That this is about any of those things or like anything at all, like this is just <laughs> That's a debate. A nihilist this is just a debate <laughs> about whether Bernie Sanders should be the twenty twenty nominee that I think has like virtually no content to it like this Bernie Sanders bill is like not gonna be law like it does it doesn't matter at all, this like hair splitting about like what was Cory Booker saying or like should we settle? I I, I think there's a debate about like Sanders had this bill and then a bunch of people signed on to the bill because they didn't want to let Bernie Sanders get to his left. Then Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll and what they found in the poll is that the popularity of Medicare for all is very susceptible to framing effects. Right, And so they demonstrate this very clearly by showing that like there's like wild swings. It's
0: like a 20% and especially on employer-sponsored insurance. When when
2: you make particularly different things salient, right? So one thing they found, the way they tested the question was how would it change your feeling when you find out that it – bans all private health insurance. So that turned out to be like one of the most unfavorable. It was the framings. most unfavorable. Just to right. put
0: some numbers to it, this. It, you exactly. 56 percent supported like generally and then it falls to 37 when you say you, right. the private insurance So then, So then
2: what happened next was that a journalist saw that this particular framing polls very poorly and so put that framing to Kamala Harris who was an ostensible Medicare for All supporter. So then Harris chose to bite the bullet and say, I endorse the bill that I have endorsed, even when you give it this negative framing. So then, because that's a negative framing, this was widely perceived as potentially a political problem for Harris. And so then the decision was made, okay, we're going to put, put the screws to everybody with this negative framing. And Cory Booker, it seems like, didn't want to bite the bullet on the negative framing and started
3: going, ahem, ahem, ahem. Um, so I, I want to say, because we've kind of twice said his answer is unclear, and it wasn't that hemi. He said, look, a lot of European systems, you have public health care, but you still have private insurance, so no. Like, it, it was not, I, in my view, like an unclear answer. He just said no.
2: But he's also co-sponsored this bill, right? Because then you get further sure, yes. levels of unclarity, right? Which is... Is it true, really, that Bernie's bill bans private insurance? And like, no, it doesn't ban private insurance. That is a possible way to frame it. Uh, wh- what it does is it says the exact way the Canadian system does, right? Like there's a government insurance plan that everybody is enrolled in. There is no ability to opt out of the government insurance plan and private companies cannot offer duplicative coverage. Right. So it also is the case that Bernie's vision in the bill is extraordinarily expansive. So it's very hard to see what niche would be left for private right. insurance. So like in
0: Canada, they don't cover dental, prescription drugs or vision. So right. That's where you usually get your private yes, coverage. Yes, yes. And yes. Sanders care, all of that's part I of the mean, public I mean, in plan. theory,
2: right? I mean, then – but if in, in the current proposal. But, but if you're thinking, right, if you want to like understand the world, like how does the world work – The fact is is that like there is no provision of that law that says private health insurance is now illegal. You know what I mean? Now, Republicans will say that it does, right? But like this is just a politics thing that has come up, right? And one thing that is revealed that is very important is that a number of ambitious Democratic Party politicians signed on to Bernie Sanders' health care bill because they decided, fuck this, we're not letting Bernie get to our left on healthcare anymore without having really fully familiarized themselves with all of its details, right? Like there are lots of ways you could have punched back on that negative framing question that like I think Harris should have done and been like – This bill doesn't ban private insurance. And then we could all, you know, go to the fact-checking lawyers and Glenn Kessler could rule how many Pinocchios does she get. But like Bernie, who I'm sure, uh, you know, has thought a lot about Bernie's bill, like he's going to answer this question by counterpunching he's going to say he doesn't think people love Cigna and like it's true, Cigna has a very low rating and he's going to say this is the richest country and we should guarantee health insurance for everybody as a matter of right and when people like really try to nail him down, like he just won't let himself get nailed down and it showed, I think like a certain level of unpreparedness and amateurishness on the part of Harris's campaign there but at the same time, like nobody's going to pass this law. So like, Who cares, right? Like if your number one concern in life is will private health insurance be banned in 2021 by the new democratic president, like the answer is no. Like that is not going to happen. If you're fanatically committed to electing a president who will ban it, like you're out of luck. If you're really worried that the president is going to ban it, like I got great news for you (laughs) because like none of that is going to to happen. So, So, like, who cares? Like,
0: So, I I mean, I I do not take quite a nihilist approach to this debate. I think it is shaping where – I think it is notable that Democrats, even after the Affordable Care Act debate, have decided, like, this is the thing they want to invest a lot of policy energy in. And I think one of the things we've talked about in this show before is that prioritization matters a lot. Right. what you are – seeing right now, I think, is a prioritization of healthcare, And like a—one of the things that's been really notable to me over the past two years has been this real proliferation of plans in Congress from liberal think tanks like CAP and Urban Institute. Um, You know, Dylan Scott and I did this big piece at the beginning of the year looking at these eight different plans to get to—that expand public coverage in some way. I think there's a really important debate that is being fought— out in this primary right now, being fought out in Congress about, like, what this vision looks like. Will it happen in 2021? Like, no, probably not. What happened in, like, 2030? I don't know. Maybe. But, like, this is the discussion that precedes, you know, figuring out, like, which of these eight plans that Dill and I wrote about— which is the one that they want to you know ultimately get behind? But
2: this is this is what what is exactly frustrating me about it. Like I think the prioritization issue is so important, right? And I think that it is like wrong to, I think that what is happening here is a lot of there's a tendency to equate taking the most extreme position on the policy issue with saying that you want to prioritize it. But like I just know personally, if you drew two axes, like how much time do you want to spend on healthcare in 2021 uh, is like one thing on the on the y-axis. And then the x-axis is like what do you agree with as your vision of healthcare? And I'm like off in a corner somewhere, like 100% on board with Bernie's plan. Like That is absolutely how the healthcare system should work. The government should pay for everything, like it should be done with taxes. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. Now, do I want the next president to make their top priority a healthcare bill? Like, fuck no! Like, please don't. Right? Like, please. Like, let's address anything else other than healthcare. But just because
0: it's not your priority, like, this is where they're no. I I,
2: I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just trying to say that I think that that is a. I, I think that's a coherent answer to the question, and I think it would be good to see the candidates debate, not like what is your pie in the sky ultimate vision but like do you want to make a big push for healthcare reform in 2021 or not? Like a much more telling thing that Harris said in – in a, I think it was a separate interview with Jeff Stein was that like she wanted to make her number one priority her LIFT Act bill. That – gives you a lot of information about policymaking in the Harris administration, right? Because like, if you make that your top priority, then you're not making a big healthcare push your top priority, uh, which I think is a big deal and is a wise... Choice. Um, and like, she's really, really not going to ban private health insurance while not prioritizing it.
3: So, a couple of things here. One, it, to just like go to this question of like, who cares and should we talk about things that are probably not going to pass? Like, I had a good time listening to the weeds from Friday where there's like a lot of discussion of HR1, which has automatic voter registration and changes to voter suppression efforts and to money in politics. Everything in hr1 can be filibustered nothing can be put into reconciliation because none of it's fundamentally budgetary so it's like None of it will pass. Right. Probably right. unless you're going to get rid of the filibuster. But this stuff is worth talking about because maybe it will pass. And also it's you're you're beginning to see the um, efforts to build political strategy, beginning to see efforts to actually clarify what the agenda even is to a first approximation like American politics is built. So nothing happens. But like here we are. We have a twice a week podcast. The other thing, though, that I do think is important is that there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who prioritize healthcare first. Um, in in a, there's a new Washington Post ABC News poll that had it as the plurality of Democratic voters put healthcare as their number one issue. And there are different strategies of how to re reform the healthcare system that are being laid out here. And I do think that's actually important. The Bernie Sanders strategy, when I talk to his people, it's basically a, a maximalist bargaining strategy. The idea is you start with a thing all the way on the left, and then you know if you have to. You're you're going to bargain back down to something that, that that's more moderate. So it's like you begin with we're going to get rid of we're going to abolish private insurance. And then it's like you painfully make the compromise of, OK, you can, I don't know, still have a Medicare Advantage plan or a supplementary plan of a different kind. Or you say like, yes, it's going to have everything with no co-pays. And then it's like you give away to the Republicans some co-pays. And then I think there's this other um, version, which is that's not a that's not a viable model because it assumes an outcome it assumes that like there's going to be an end point to the negotiation that isn't just like the bill dies but if you don't assume that which I think a lot of people don't and one in American politics shouldn't well then if you start with a plan that's going to begin unpopular like you're never going to get to any of that bargaining because they're going to kill you before it ever happens so it's like there's a real like question like is Bernie Sanders right that running on this highly expansive Canada like Canada but more generous style plan is is going to build out the political revolution and give him, you know, a bigger vote total and more electability and is going to like mobilize people who felt disaffected from the political system before or Sherrod Brown, I thought was actually one of the most interesting entrants into all this. I don't think it got as much attention. But in Iowa the other day, he said, like, unlike all the other Democrats, I'm not going to talk about Medicare for all. And Sherrod Brown is very liberal. He said, like, I want to talk about bringing Medicare down to 55 years old because we can actually pass that. And like, I don't want to make promises I can't I I, I can't fulfill. I want to talk about the things that can actually pass. And he's right. He probably can pass that. You can probably do that through budget reconciliation. And you could probably get you know, you may be able to even get some you know, whether you get Republican votes actually is probably unlikely. But if you could get it for anything, it would probably be that. And so like Brown isn't saying he doesn't support Medicare for all. He's just saying he has a different view of of, of the politics here. And so I do think this debate matters. I think like the Booker idea, which it seems to me he's going to end up coming out with his own plan, as probably all of them will, that is going to look more like Medicare for America, where it's more of a transition. And like that's the idea versus like the Sanders idea of like go maximalist and people are going to love it and they're going to support you. And like, then you can bargain down from it all the way to the brown of like, let's go incrementalist and use a Medicare branding to do something much more careful and non-threatening. The way the Democratic Party chooses to do this will be important, one, whether it happens, but also in whether or not a Democrat gets elected in 2020, because if the healthcare plan is popular or unpopular, like that can actually matter in an election.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So like Sherrod Brown, I I totally agree. Like we should talk about that because like his idea is bad and realistic. So like I am legitimately worried that Sherrod Brown or somebody else will be elected president and will pursue a like age reduction Medicare strategy, which I think like the political economy of that I think is catastrophic right that like one thing that we have seen is that because elderly people have medicare they have become like fanatical right wingers on healthcare issues who seem to really fear that any further expansion of public insurance is going to um wreck them and it's going to come out of their pockets and this has become has become a huge problem for democrats and for the country and like i think this brown idea is like not only feasible but like quite pernicious right whereas like Bernie's plan, as written, I think is a little loopy, Um, but also like it's not that you shouldn't talk about the plan because it's not going to be enacted, but because it's not going to be enacted, there is no particular reason to sit here in like white-knuckle terror about the capacity problems inherent in a zero copays for anything system because as you say, Ezra, like it's a bargaining strategy. You know what I mean? Like, which is fine, right? But then like—so it's not that I don't think we should talk about these things. It's like I I think we should talk about what is actually different between the different people here and what's going on. And in particular, this thing around the banning private insurance, it's this like triple backflip of like— A poll revealed a negative framing. So then reporters are kind of putting the candidates to the test. People who are fanatical Bernie Sanders supporters, they know, right, before anything has ever happened— All the Bernie fanatics know that everybody else is going to betray them. So they're like hyper-attuned for signs that they're going to be betrayed. And softness on these questions is evidence of that. And that's like a big dynamic going here. At the same time, like electability is really important. Nobody wants to vote for candidates who's going to like embrace highly negative framing and like clobber themselves with it. And there's a difference in bargaining strategies, but there's a really big difference in prioritization, which like I think... Is a much more significant element here that I have not seen getting the level of explicit kind of debate that it should, right? Like there was a Politico article where they asked Senate Democrats like how they feel about filibuster and it seems like Senate Democrats are really quite committed to filibuster, right? So I don't think that's a great idea, but it means like we're talking about reconciliation packages realistically. And like it would, it would be good to like squeeze the candidates, not so much on like hostile framing Kaiser Family Foundation polls, but on like what do you think could be achieved with a budget reconciliation package?
0: Because okay, like you can do a lot, you know? So I, but I want to stick with this question of private insurance because I yeah. think like— it, it, I agree. I would also enjoy a prioritization debate. Like, if Canadas want to have that, that's great. But I want to talk a little bit about how we structure healthcare systems because, sure. like, that is what I was interested in doing coming into this episode of the Weeds. And I think one of the things that's become a little, you know, difficult to tell in this debate in this debate is that universal coverage, in a way, has gotten equated with government sponsored healthcare. And I think that's because of our proximity to Canada, because of how similar the Sanders plan. Looks to a Canadian healthcare system that it, it's kind of become ingrained in the conversation that, you know, oh, if we're going to do universal coverage, if we're going to get everyone into health insurance, then we'll do what Canada does. And, you know, we'll have the country, or in the case of Canada, each province is going to run a healthcare plan. There will be no private plans that can compete with the healthcare plan. And that's the way we are going to get low prices. The government is going to set them. But I think one of the things that gets lost, maybe just because the countries are a little bit further away, is if you look at the European model of healthcare, then you see something quite different. You see in countries like Switzerland, Germany, that there's actually a lot of private health insurance plans, that these are countries that have long had universal healthcare, but they do so in really, really tightly regulated health insurance markets, where you still have some government rate setting, but you don't have the government actually running the healthcare benefits. It is kind of interesting and notable to me that you don't – that you don't get as much policy debate about doing a European-style healthcare system in the United States. That Canada – and I think because of the role the Sanders plan plays – has kind of been an outsized influence in like how we think of like what policies are possible – in our healthcare system, when it almost seems like a bit of a false dichotomy that's been created in this debate about, oh, if you're for universal healthcare, you eliminate private insurance. And, you know, if you want to do something more moderate, you keep private insurance. You can do some pretty extreme things with with keeping private insurance. Like, you can regulate their profits. You can regulate their prices. Like, you can get a, a heck of a way Towards the type of system Sanders is envisioning, with private insurers remaining around. Here, let's let let's take a break
2: here, and then I I I want to delve into the history of how we got to this point.
1: Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. b u r r o w. dot com slash weeds for fifteen percent off. Burrow.com dot com slash weeds.
2: So. My recollection of the construction of the Affordable Care Act is that one of the really big priorities there, like something that mattered like a lot more than the impact on people's health or the economy or anything of substance, is that they desperately, desperately, desperately wanted the Congressional Budget Office to agree that they had not raised taxes and increased spending by all that much. Right, And so therefore, it was important to use this mandate structure so that you were going to be incentivized to purchase insurance, but with a lot of the dollars being technically private, right? And so then it became really important to revisit this debate from the 90s when the CBO had decided that if the government regulated the healthcare sector too much, that they were going to score the premiums as taxes because that was one of the things that happened to Hillary Care, right? Was that she proposed something that was – I guess it it was modeled on Germany, more or less, or it was like yeah, you Think
3: of it almost like it was like as if like everything became Obamacare's exchanges,
2: right? But also, it was very tightly regulated, right? To the point that the CBO scored the premiums as taxes. So the Clinton people regard that as a key. Reason that that plan fell apart. So the Obama people were determined to avoid that mistake by making sure that the regulation was lax enough. And like this came up specifically with the medical loss ratio provisions, where they learned from the CBO that if they made the medical lo- medical loss ratio was basically like you have to spend most of the money. Eighty percent, right? So if they made the medical loss ratio too high, the CBO was going to score it as taxes, right? Because it really was a government takeover. And you cannot underestimate how much more this CBO scoring business weighed on people's minds than any substantive consideration. And that's important when you go back to considering the potential for a like Switzerland, Germany regulated style system. Because... If the problem with the move to single payer that you're trying to solve is that it's important to preserve some choice and role for private insurance, then the continental European model offers you a real alternative, right? But if the problem with the single payer model that you're trying to solve is CBO sticker shock, then the European model doesn't solve your problem. And that, I think, is why you've wound up with such a polarized debate because the middle ground solution doesn't actually fix what people in the middle want fixed, right? Whereas some other stuff does fix that, right? If you take the Affordable Care Act as it is and you do some of this stuff that's floating around Congress to like shore up the exchanges and you add a public option to the exchanges, that actually saves money, right? Rather than costing money. And then if you take some of those savings, you can make taxes lower rather than higher. And then if you want to make the exchanges even bigger, you can go back to – Ron Wyden had some plan to like open the exchanges up, right? So if you do public option and you open the exchanges, then you can have a system that drastically increases insurance coverage levels, does something to control costs, and critically doesn't raise taxes at all. Right, So like that's an appealing middle ground but going to Switzerland – even though like in theory – like Swiss healthcare is fine, right? But going to Switzerland would still score as a huge tax increase and like that's what gives people – that's what gives normal democrats in congress like don't want to have a $20 trillion tax increase.
3: So I, I wanna have I wanna go back to something though that was in what Sarah was saying, which is before we get to the question of like what will the median Democrat end up finding to be the the, the thing that really scares them because because you're totally right Matt. that oftentimes it's been taxes and if it is still true that it is taxes like none of these plans are going uh, at least not the sanders plan the, they're not going anywhere because they would require huge like unbelievable eye-popping tax increases as basically the entire healthcare system is brought onto the federal budget and you can say as often as you like that um Oh, it's actually not more total na- national health expenditure spending. It's just a movement in where it's coming from. But, like when it was your employer doing it and you didn't know about it before, but now it's you doing it, and your employer hasn't given you all that back in wages necessarily, That's right. you know, or it's like employer you know, side payroll taxes. Or the whatever you do it, like however you do it, the number of losers and also like people who perceive themselves to be losers could be unbelievably high. But I actually I think there's like an interesting question here, which is, Ideally, if you you know if you assume that the rate setting is the same in both systems, right? The amount of the, the pricing people are paying is the same in both systems, which it can be. You don't need it to only be the government providing insurance for it to be the government setting prices, as the system Sarah's talking about show. Do you want to have private insurance? Like, is there a role for it? You can th- and like the ones you might think of, uh, right? Or are. If private insurers are structuring some of these benefits, maybe there will be useful innovation in how the benefits are structured. Like maybe they will give you, I don't know, like access to emailing your doctor kind of things that currently people don't have or that the government itself wouldn't think of having. Or maybe it would be that, you know, you, you want to be able to do it to buy higher levels of, of different kinds of services that, you know, depending on how you define what duplicative would be, you know, being able to get some of that concierge stuff might be important to people. or. Maybe Maybe bringing profit incentives into it would be bad because you'd have, um, you know, you'd have risk selection or, or a number of other things. But I actually think they're you know, recognizing that this is probably like. I do not think we're going to get rid of private health insurance in, in 2021. Having a clear idea of like what you think the ideal system is and how it would be structured, I, I think, is worthwhile. And certainly my sense of the situation is that most European countries over the past 20, 30, 40 years have moved towards opening their system to more kinds of insurance competition. Not like... Private insurers setting rates, and not private insurance often in the way we think about it, but they a lot of them have seemed to move towards a little bit more choice in insurance products. I don't know the stories of the individual systems well enough to to speak with a ton of authority on it, but but I take it as some as, as some level of. Um, information there and similarly the way that Medicare has evolved towards having Medicare Advantage into in which Medicare Advantage has become a higher part of the system a larger part of the system you know you can make arguments about why that is maybe it's a Medicare Advantage is overly subsidized or, or something else but there does appear to be some pressure inside different systems including initially quite pure single-payer ones to open insurance products up to more kinds of private competition and innovation um, and, and I do wonder if that you know if the reasons for that are aren't being I don't have a great handle on what they are because I often don't think that private insurance competition works very well but that they're there I think is information that should be taken at least somewhat seriously in this conversation
0: yeah and I think that often gets lost because of the focus I I think what gets lost is Canada's actually a bit of an outlier in that way that Canada has had this like really you know Firm commitment to not having private insurance, although you know, as we noted earlier, Canada does allow private insurance for something as important as prescription drugs. Like even in a system that really values government-sponsored healthcare and everyone having the same plan, um, there is a little work around this. I believe Ontario is trying to do some work to get prescription drug coverage, but um, I think that's a key point and, and one that just does not get thought through, but I think it is is—it is a crucial point of, like, what value is brought to a system where the prices are regulated, but you have different people running different healthcare benefits. Um, you know, another one— Another thing you could see going on is, you know, what benefits are covered? Something like, um, you know, infertility treatment, autism treatment, like those are things where some states have mandates, some don't. Like that is one place where you could see those benefits being different between the different providers versus if you have one government run system, you're kind of, you know, dealing with the insurance the government gives you and you're not going to have, you know, the access to to coverage for those sorts of benefits that can be a bit of an edge case. But I don't really hear that. Debate happening much in in healthcare. That debate between like tightly regulated private market versus you know a government run market. It's just like the private coverage we have now or not that coverage. But that's
2: I mean I think Sarah Sarah was making a, a, a critical point there right, which is that real government run health insurance systems do not cover everything. In the way that the theoretical Sanders care mm-hmm. would, right? In order to reduce the fiscal cost, they both have services that they don't cover and they have co-payments.
0: Well, not here in Canada.
2: That, but. Sure, sure. But I mean, they, they are limited in some ways, yes. right? And so to Ezra's question, right? Like The appeal of a private option in a real-world public system is to say, okay, rather than having... The government make a unitary choice of your trade-offs between choice of providers, co-payments, and scope of coverage with the same amount of money that it would cost to give you the government choice of trade-offs. Maybe you should be allowed to choose between multiple different trade-off vendors, right? And the reason that conversation doesn't get off the ground in a context that's structured around the Sanders care proposal, right, is that like if you had Bernie care as your public option, there would be no reason to take a private option because Bernie care is not making any trade-offs. So to say, well, I want the right to get a different set of trade-offs doesn't make sense. Medicare, like actual Medicare for elderly people rather than hypothetical Medicare for all makes trade-offs, right? And the reason why a lot of people, in, um, particularly in larger metro areas, like the Medicare Advantage plans is that they give you different sets of trade-offs where you can accept a narrower network of providers but get a more generous coverage or you can accept a wider network with less generous coverage and different people's tastes and financial situations and medical situations are different, right? Whereas in rural areas, there's very little Medicare Advantage take-up because there's nothing... Like there's nothing you can do, right? Like people in low-density areas have almost no choice of providers anyway. So there's nothing that the private insurers can, can do at all. And I think – I mean I think it's true, right? If we move to a Medicare for all system, the actual system would end up being not as generous as the Bernie system and then there would be pressure to offer more choice. Like an obvious one is abortion, right? Like it's – unlikely to me that we're going to have publicly financed free abortions in the United States. Whereas a private insurance group uh, would I think normally want to offer abortion coverage um, because it is um, A, an attractive product to many people and B, probably a lot cheaper than covering pregnancy delivery and a new child, you know? So they're happy to do it. And this is uh, when Colorado was trying to have a single-payer ballot initiative. Like, it eventually fell apart in just this, like, infighting around the abortion topic because pro-choice groups don't want a single-payer system that leaves abortion out. Um, But, like, moderates don't like—they don't—you know, turning it into a proxy fight about abortion is not constructive. Uh, So choice among private providers is a sort of natural potential solution to that. But all of that means— That, like, only comes in once you, like, step out of the universe in which we'll just cover everything.
3: There's a lot more to say on this, um, but I think we should take a break and move to our white paper. Okay. So the white paper today is The Welfare Effects of Social Media. It's by Hunt Alcott, Lusa Berg. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, Sarah Eichmeyer, and Matthew Gensko. And this is a pretty interesting and in the world of papers assessing social media use, extremely rigorous paper. So what they did is they've actually created a randomized evaluation of how Facebook affects you and makes you feel. They took 2,844 Facebook users. um, They randomly assigned a subset of them to actually delete their accounts for a while, you know, like the, the the line on Twitter, delete your account, like they actually got people to do this by paying them. And then using a suite of like surveys and direct measurements and different ways of measuring outcomes, they follow them to see what would happen. And the basic takeaway of this is that if you stop using facebook literally every measurable effect it has on your life is positive um one there was reduced online activity it also reduced other social media use but increased offline activities like watching tv alone and also socializing with family and friends so if you stop sort of digitally doing so much socializing with family and friends you actually spend more time with them in person um it reduced both factual news knowledge and political polarization you saw less um you 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 like, knew a little bit less about the news and you were less polarized about it. It increased subjective well-being, increased how good people felt. And then this was the most interesting. It caused a large and persisting reduction in Facebook use after the experiment. So you pay people to quit Facebook for a little while, people who already use it, people who were not going to quit it if you had not given them money. And at the end of that study, a lot of them keep not using Facebook. They prefer the world in which they don't use this thing that they were using before, which, as the author's note, really fits well with an addiction model of how Facebook is working with us as opposed to a normal like we use it because it is a product that people enjoy.
0: Yeah, I think it pushes back against this idea of, you know, use of Facebook being a case of revealed preference that people say they hate social media, but then they spend all this time on it because actually that is the thing. They enjoy and it pushes more towards an understanding of social media, like you're saying, Ezra, as more of an, you know, addiction model. I think it raises—I mean, for me, it kind of, like, raises this interesting question of, like, where does it leave us? Like, you could almost—you know, with—if we're, like, actually seeing health gains, like, people are feeling better. Like, does this fall in a weird case of public health intervention where, like, this is something— you would want to promulgate in some way, not just for a randomized trial, but like literally giving people money to quit social media because you feel like that is part of the greater good. Um, it left me with a bit of a, you know, where to where to take this from here, but definitely making me think like this is not a case of revealed preference. I, the other thing that really jumped out at me is the um, lowered news consumption. I thought that was pretty yeah. interesting. I think it surprised me the most. I would have thought if you quit Facebook, you would have found your news elsewhere, um, but it actually reminded me a little bit, you know, this summer when I was out on maternity leave, um, I wasn't really using social media. I was just super busy trying to keep a tiny human alive. You know, my news consumption went down a ton. Like, it was the first time, like, I heard things on the radio and I was surprised by, like, the news I was learning. Like, oh, Scott Pruitt is, you know, doing whatever he is doing at that point. Um, but I, I that was a little bit surprising and interesting to me that people weren't finding their news elsewhere, um, you know, when they were doing this off Facebook time?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, the the numbers on what is sort of crowded in by limiting people's Facebook are interesting and telling, right? Because I think with anything that happens on the internet that people say is terrible, um, it usually is terrible. But the optimistic case is always, well, it's crowding out television. Because television is more terrible than terrible things on the internet, like whatever it is, like fake news, All everything is worse on, on television. Uh, but what you're saying in this study is that like while um, making people not use Facebook did crowd in extra television watching, like it also crowded in uh, extra socializing and extra exercising. And I think, um, I don't know, I think it's relatively uncontroversial to claim that like most people's well-being would be better off in the long term if they did more in- person socializing and more um, physical activity, um, and a little television is like a, a small price to pay for that. Um, I'm always like the Facebook critic, so to give them a break here for once, it does seem like almost just a generic internet kind of thing, right? that it's like there's only 24 hours in the day. We're not obtaining like technologies that let us go without sleeping. Uh, people need to work to live right so it's like you just like put more stuff on the like entertainment options bus and this is kind of what you get it's just kind of not great right like to have so much of the innovation and progress and like we've made billions of dollars stuff happening just specifically in the entertainment zone is like Maybe not actually great for people's lives, right? Like, I don't know that anybody says, like, you know, this is a joke. So, like, what do you look back on your deathbed? And it's like, do, do you ever, like, wish you'd rewatched more classic uh, television series on Netflix? Like, I don't know, right? Um, or, like, scrolled more through Facebook, right? It's a it's a striking paradigm that, like, we've made so much progress in ways to waste time.
3: Uh, I think two two things about that that I think are interesting. One is that I... Completely agree with your your broad point there that we're sort of seeing, you know, just an effect on semi-addictive entertainment just in general. Like if you paid people to quit video games, you might see similar numbers among people who play a lot of video games. But where, where I do think it's interesting, one, I think the political polarization finding is interesting. I mean, not because it's shocking, just because like, you know, it backs up what people have thought, but something Facebook has argued against. Similarly, by the way, the the the, the paper finds that there's not a difference in subjective well-being Between people who are using it passively, which is to say, like, scrolling through the newsfeed looking at stuff, and people using it actively, so clicking like and leaving comments. Facebook has said that the latter does improve well-being, and and, and this paper finds it doesn't. But I think of the big picture of this paper as being, here we have this communications platform that has begun to reshape almost everything in society. It's reshaping journalism, it's reshaping politics, it's reshaping how we communicate with each other, it's reshaping how we feel, it's reshaping how practically younger people um, develop their identities and how they rate, like how they're doing as a social human being and actor. And it just doesn't appear to be a good platform, right? Like all this is happening on top of a structure that if you take the structure out of people's lives, they seem a little bit happier. And There's not a lot you can do about this exactly, but it's bad. It's like bad if we are kind of rushing towards, um, you know, having one of the really foundational technologies be a technology that is on net bad for people. And it's not unbelievably bad for people. Right. I I want to note that the magnitudes in this paper are not unbelievably shocking or or anything else. But even to, to what you were saying, Matt, and I recognize people are saying this about TV and they may have been right about TV. Right. Like maybe the critics were just right about all of this stuff. But I'm not even sure Facebook's better than TV in the sense that I think there's probably a long-term cost towards a kind of like constant context switching and like a rapid attentional distraction and like you know i i find it increasingly harder to like sit down and watch a movie um which you know seems ridiculous uh but i think it's because i'm like increasingly used to to ever smaller information so i don't take the results of this study as saying that facebook is like unbelievably bad in any individual case but what i do take it as suggesting is that we are building an awful lot of our society around um, just kind of passively accepting that everything now needs to be constructed on top of a technology that does not appear to be good for us or to make us happier. Yeah, and well, to just add on to that, like a natural thing in the
2: regulatory debate, like a regulatory debate about any industry is like, yeah, that sounds good, but you might just like deflate the product as a whole, right? And like, I think just what we see in these studies is that like we shouldn't think of, social media companies anymore as these like promising delicate flowers that we're afraid will be killed by our, you know, overstretching arm. They're more like those like terrible weeds, you know, that like just grow relentlessly everywhere. And if you can keep them away, if you can like rein them in from the most problematic areas, like even if there are some unintended consequences, like that's probably fine. Like they do a really good job of getting people addicted to, like, scurrying around on their phone, and that's not good. What is good is scurrying around
3: <laughs> with your podcasting. I'm not doing it. You don't have to join the Weeds Facebook group this week. It's okay. Uh, well, look,
2: as long as you're addicted to Facebook, you may as well join the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, it's probably healthier. But really, you know, like, get, see see if other Weeds Facebook group members live in your town. Hang out in person. Yeah. Talk about politics and policy that matters. Uh, walk or jog. To the destination, Bicycle. Listen There's to lots your That's a good ways. Um, yes, and get out of the house and listen to podcasts. All the Vox Media podcasts. Um, I, I'm going to plug uh, The Ezra Klein Show. I love the Kate Mann episode. Uh, she oh, wrote good. A good. Thank she you. She wrote a great book, uh, but she's. Uh, it, it was a really enlightening interview. I think it shed light on, on a ton of stuff. People should check that out. Um, but all Vox Media Network podcasts, really.
3: And I've got Ralph Nader out today.
2: Oh, my God. That's that's triggering for me. I don't think I can listen <laughs> to that. Listen to the k Man one instead. Um, <laughs> and thanks, as always, to our producer, uh, Jeffrey Geld, and The Weeds will return on Friday.